it is the 31st of August, day 18 of the trip. We are in Shrewsbury. Oh, is that how you even say it? Is that Shrewsbury. Yeah. Shrewsbury. Oh, yes, but there's arguments as whether it could be Shrewsbury too, but I'm a Shrewsbury. Okay. Born and bred, and we say Shrewsbury. Yeah. Perfect. And I'm with Ruth. Hello, and welcome to the Extraordinary Ordinary Women podcast, sharing life's adventures. My name's Frankie, and this is a podcast where I interview extraordinary, ordinary women and non-binary folk as part of a 3,000 kilometre cycle around England, Wales and Scotland. Interviewing people older than myself to show that you don't just have to do it whilst you're young. You'll hear all about their adventures and what they get up to, as well as their answers to my big life questions. Like what does authenticity mean? Did you have a clear sense of direction through life? And what advice would you give to your younger self? This is episode 10, where I talk to Ruth. I camped out in Ruth's garden in an oasis of calm, surrounded by sculptures and rusty shopping trolleys. You'll find out why. It is an awesome conversation where we travel around the world dive into the life of an artist and Ruth shares her stories and inspirations from her local brick. We recorded in her kitchen so there's not much background noise. You can sometimes hear her family coming through the kitchen but I'm sure that just adds to Ruth's awesome stories. people who don't know who you are, can you give us a snapshot of who you are and what you do? So I'm Ruth, Ruth Gibson, Shropshire born and bred. I am 55 years old and I'm an artist working with clay or describe myself as a ceramic artist. I, would, I wouldn't say I'm a potter because I don't make pots as, sh- as such and I don't throw pots. So, um, But I make artwork out of clay. Um, very landscape based and inspired by nature and uh, I also work with the community involving community and clay works um, again uh, with a preference or a leaning towards working outdoors in nature which is my favourite place to work really Um, I live with my partner long term partner Dave uh, who's a events planning officer for Shropshire Council Uh, we've been together 34 years and we have a daughter together called Jessie, who's 15 years old. Anything else? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. No, that's incredible. Um, have you always been an artist? I guess I have, really. In my heart, I've always been an artist. I mean, I've not been a professional artist all my life, but I've been a maker. And I've been a maker from a, a very young age. Uh, so right through my childhood, I was, I was always making things. And my initial career choice was to be a PE teacher with art as a second subject and realised quite soon in the process that I wasn't really cut out to be a PE teacher but I quite like the art side and uh, post post uh, university and uh, studying and living abroad in Italy I set up a business hand making greeting cards and and craft items and I did that for 15 years which was a successful business but really not my heartfelt artwork. So there was a there was a disconnect between me 
and, and the work I was making and selling. So during that period, I was going to life drawing classes and, and doing all sorts of sculptural work. And I, I eventually started working for a dance company based in London, doing um, various arts workshops in schools, combining with their, their dance education and um, making stage sets actually for this dance company which was which was fantastic and there was there was always this realization in the background that I had no training for this and really I ought to I think if I was going to take it take myself seriously as an artist I ought to go and get some training and uh, at the age grand old age of 35 after a, a, a most amazing trip to India and Nepal trekking um, I came back and decided to go off and do a degree for the third time in sculpture and ceramics, combining all my loves, sculpture, printmaking, photography, clay. Um, so that was an absolutely fantastic experience. So I, I didn't really start this ceramic business and, and, and being a full-time artist until I was almost 38, 39, um, and soon after had a had a baby as well. So, so my, my artistic career has uh, been com combined always or juggled with being a parent, but that, that's been an interesting process. What's the work-life balance like of an artist? <laughs> it's a very good question, and I can't, I can't speak for other artists, but I'm, I'm sort of very motivated and highly driven, So I, and I'm a grafter, so I tend to do incredibly long hours, so I don't have I don't have concerns about not getting started generally, but the discipline to actually stop is quite hard, and especially when you're really engrossed. And I I now am fortunate enough eventually to have built a studio in my garden, and that was after years of finding studios, losing studios, having nowhere to work, and and not wanting to invest so much money in building a kiln somewhere. So we eventually moved house with the sole purpose really of having a bigger garden to to build a studio. That has its advantages and disadvantages. It's great in the, in, in the way that you can come in and do some work in the kitchen or hang out the washing or, you know, I could see Jessie at three o'clock after school, but then I can go back in the studio. It's very much at home. It has a disadvantage that my work, you know, there's, and, and what's incredible as an artist and what a lot of people don't realise, the, the background to it is there's a huge amount of paperwork and, and emailing and management. And sometimes it's two or three days a week out of my five-day week or seven day a week what what happens really is work is always at home and that that's quite a sometimes a difficult balance so I I tend to go away a lot so holidays when it's school holidays I'm not very good at holidaying in my own home and relaxing because I see I see the work and and it's weird really because as an artist I think I see life as work and work as life I, sometimes the definition isn't so strong it's not like I can put it down at five o'clock and I have a partner who does, and I slightly envy, envious of that of that situation. And sometimes it's incredibly busy. And um, I, again, in the last few years, work's been quite successful enough so that I've taken on a couple of assistants, and and that's been great. And they turn up for work quite early, and you know, or they're very good at being flexible because I'm not a great person to start at eight o'clock in the morning. And I have weird little obsessions that my kitchen has to be in order and tidied and things away before I uh, start my work in the studio. I can't leave the house messy. And that's that's quite unusual for an artist because a lot of artists can work in chaos and I don't. I work in order 
and ceramics particularly because it's um you have to be very careful of the clay dust which you can you can um you don't want to be breathing in the the dust of clay which is tiny grains of silica not good not good for the lungs we have to wipe down all the time so i'm very used to keeping good order in the studio we have to do that um the great advantage now being at this stage of my career and having these studio assistants is that it has released me from being this absolute flat out maker to allow myself to do yoga and running and other activities that I love but never allowed myself to do and I will allow myself now to do them in the daytime which it feels extraordinary you know that I can go out for a walk in the daytime or a run so I think I've achieved something in life (laughs) I can do that so that's that's that has only happened in the last few years and I'm 55 you know that's that's a much better work balance for me um, can you talk a little bit about the community projects? Oh wow, right. yes. Um, oh yeah. Over the over the years, I've just been engaged to do um, various public art projects. Um, and and quite often there is a if it's a commission, they would like a, a community element of that. So we, it's it's like outreach. But we've always been really keen to not just engage the community in what we're doing but for them to be able to make elements ceramic based elements that we've taught them how to make that those pieces actually go back into the piece of public artwork so they can see their work they can feel proud about the work they can they can um, take ownership of the work so uh, I did a a project with a colleague going back to 2005-6 when my my daughter was a was a baby and we we got small pot of funding from the, the local council to use reclaimed materials from a, a, an old hospital that had closed down and the hospital was going to be regenerated into housing and an office for a, a housing company. But two thirds of this building was knocked down and the building had incredible history. It was, it was originally a, a workhouse and it was the largest maternity hospital in Shropshire. In fact, my partner was born there this this is cross houses just outside shrewsbury so we saw this opportunity to use reclaimed materials from the hospital so we pulled out bricks and stone and slate to rebuild community facilities such as bus shelters and and benches and um develop an art project all around that idea and it was it was environment with environmental awareness and sustainability and upcycling they would call it these days i don't think that word was invented then um, yeah, other projects I've done have been working outside in nature, sort of using natural materials to make impressions in clay. So we're, we're capturing, uh, you know, marks from leaves or, or the bark of a particular tree or dead seed heads. Clay clay has that beautiful quality to, to just um, take a, a print or an impression of um, natural materials. And then we can also use twigs and... and as, as tools to, to um, make marks into clay. And quite often, again, those pieces, once they're fired, they're obviously, they have a long life. They go back into public sculptures or we set them into wood. And uh, and it's, it's just wonderful to work out in the environment with people very close to nature, with clay, which is earth dug out of the ground, you know. We're, and we're using our eyes to, to observe in detail the bits of nature. And we're using our hands to transform what is a piece of clay dug out of the ground into something that's either beautiful or functional? So I think that's a really lovely thing. I mean, clay, I work a lot with brick too. And, and you know, again, that's a, the bricks, a brick is made to the size of a man's hand or woman's hand. 
in order to build some of the largest structures and it's you know it's got a huge history the the, the use of brick in in house building and uh, it's always great to to talk to school children to say you know name me 10 things made out of clay and you know or the, what's the most unusual thing what's the largest thing you can think of made out of clay and and to get somebody to say a house you know you don't think that our houses that we live on are, are, are predominantly brick and they're made out of clay or how about something in the bathroom you know and they wouldn't think that a toilet is made out of clay but a toilet is made out of clay something every day they always get pots and pans you know but yeah it's quite a fun exercise to to get people thinking I mean, I wouldn't have answered either of those things either. No, I'd have no. been like, I don't know what's made out of clay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you wouldn't, would you? Oh, then there's unusual things like bits of things inside our iPhones are made out of clay. Or paper in a magazine, glossy magazines, has some ceramic clay material into it. Yeah. Um, telegraph pylons, the, the, the structure that the wires go around are made out of ceramics. You know, there's, it's just, it is quite fascinating, really. And it's a huge history archaeologically you know we've learnt about past lives through pottery it's it's um so it's it's a much bigger subject than just making pots which is also wonderful that's fascinating Uh, and it sounds like nature and the outdoors sort of flows through your work quite a lot yeah it flows it flows through my work and has flowed through my life really so um it's where I feel happiest and and most comfortable and I was brought up in a family that were outdoor lovers and with four young kids I think it it was also a cheap way of of entertaining your children we were um dragged up mountains quite often kicking and screaming I used to I used to invent ways that I've been injured to pretend I couldn't get to the top of mountains but (laughs) you know and I look back but of course it's in your blood and it now now we love it and we've spent a lot of time in North Wales and also camping you know so uh, and so what sort of trips have you done that are Outdoors trips. Outdoors trips. So my, I was very lucky to connect with a school friend who was also, um, we were both sporty and into the outdoors. And at the grand old age of 30, we were very keen on geography as well as a subject. And I think that has that connection to the physical landscape. And me and my friend Sally decided at 13 we'd like to go youth hosteling. And uh, it's not possible to do it now because I've tried to encourage my daughter to do it. You can't go youth hosteling independently under the age of 16. But we were 13 and we booked four days in the Peak District. And uh, it was incredible. I mean, our parents were both teachers and trusted us and said, yeah, go for it. Two girls, age 13, set off with rucksacks. We planned our route. We did it all ourselves. Our parents had absolutely nothing to do. I don't even remember sharing the route with my parents. So we looked at the map. We looked at the youth hostels. It was so exciting to say we're going to walk from there to there, you know, maybe 13 miles a day. And to just use a map, I remember the thrill of using a map and knowing you'd got from A to B and you'd followed lines on a piece of paper. And that first trip, you know, it rained absolutely non-stop. It really did. And we didn't see, we had rubbish cameras, but we didn't see anything anyway. But it didn't, didn't deter from the adventure, the sense of adventure and freedom. And of course, that set us for many more of those. Every year we did another one. I think the following year we went to the Yorkshire Dales and went to Malham Cove and Scotland. We had good weather then. We took we took another friend. There was three of us. And by the age of 16, in fact, I was 15, we booked to do the um, Pennine Way, which is, I can't remember the mileage, you know. I don't know, no. I can't remember if it's 300 or something. Anyway, it's walking. It, it, it starts in Derbyshire 
and goes to Scotland, Kirk Yetham. But we decided madly to do it the other way around, so we started in Scotland. One of our parents took us up to Scotland. Three of us, me, Sally, and her brother, Chris. And um, I had my 16th birthday on the Pennine Way. That's carrying a lightweight tent, cooking in... The very first day we climbed the wrong mountain by mistake. We'd argued over some map reading. I remember that. Um, and we must have been... I don't know where we were getting water from, because we... we we did some wild camping, basically. Sadly, by day eight, we did get severe, severe food poisoning because it was the first time yeah. we hadn't cooked for ourselves and we, we arrived early in a market town called Alston, the highest market town in the country. I remember that. And we got there early, so we decided to treat ourselves to fish and chips. The fish and chip shop was a Chinese shop and we had spring rolls. And they didn't look good and they didn't taste good. And we were violently sick and diarrhoea for two days and it really put us out of sync with the whole trip and um, I remember ringing my mum who was the pickup parent saying begging her to pick us up and she refused she said nope get better and get on with it and that's typical of my mother (laughs) we're going but no mum we can't we we could we couldn't do anything we were so weak so eventually they came pitch up so that, that cut that trip short that we did eight days that was 16, and then at 18 we did the big cycle trip to um, the Lake District. We cycled up to the Lake District, all around the Lake District, mostly pushing our bikes up passes, boiling hot summer, came back really, really brown, and cycling down the other side of these passes. But um, I think we cycled a 1,000 miles in a couple Amazing. of weeks. So I was 18 when I did that. And then I, my next adventure was going off as, a, as, as an 18-year-old to live in Italy on my own, having never been abroad ever with my family never flown I, I actually wouldn't get on an airplane so I went by train it took me two and a half days to get there <laughs> I took a rucksack with all my stuff for a year and I was quite shy at 18 too so that that was quite a major adventure really and uh, probably changed the course of my life you know came back after a year to PE college but that was then I, I decided not to stay in that career can't remember the so question then, there. So then what did you do? <laughs> what, adventures, what adventures? What yeah. adventures? Oh, so then so then over the years we've done quite a few um trips, traveling traveling trips. Oh my goodness, could tell some stories. We we we've been to um, traveled right across America, hired a car, had a car crash in the middle of America, um, Grand Canyon, all those sorts of things. We did an amazing this is with Dave. Actually the first year I met Dave, nineteen eighty six. We hitchhiked around Europe, again, with my little light white tent. My tent, my I've got to tell you this, my rucksack was my 18th birthday present. So that was my pride and joy, a Berghaus blue rucksack. And I still have it, and Jesse uses it, so it's been going that strong. My tent was my 21st birthday present. It was a brilliant little lightweight tent. And it only, it, it fell apart camping at the coast a few years ago. But Dave and I travelled around Europe for two and a half months and we mostly were hitchhiking. We just basically had no money. I was, I was twenty, and he was he was thirty. A great adventures, and I wish I'd wish I'd had an audio diary at that time. The most exciting thing was all the different people we met hitchhiking. But the the best bit of the journey was travelling home. We got home from Florence in Italy, back to Shrewsbury in two and a half days, and every one of those lifts was amazing. From a guy that picked us up in Belgium, we we got into this. Land Rover and he said oh can you flick that switch and turn it over to gas which I didn't know or understand really what that a vehicle had run off a gas bottle at the time 
he took us he, he took us into his hometown and the name of it is Ghent it was Ghent which is actually a big city and he said uh, I'll, I'll I know somewhere for you to pitch the, your tent in the night it'll be fine um, so he and before that he said oh I'll take you to meet some of my mates they run a restaurant and they make Trappist monks beer so we we went we just followed this guy and he took us this restaurant fed us and and poured he didn't literally pour the beer down us, but we poured it down ourselves, and it's very, very strong. So by the end of the evening, we were very, very drunk, and uh, we couldn't see the guy anywhere. But somebody said, somebody recognised and said, oh, we'll show you where you're camping. Led us through the streets, you know, quite naive in a way. We're following people through the streets. So that's where you can camp. And we were inside the middle of a monastery, but it had been turned into a hippie commune. But we didn't know, and we were so drunk we could hardly put the tent up. It was pitch black. <laughs> And uh, woke up in the morning with chickens around and all sorts of people. Get, you know, that that was just one of these, um, one of the strong Amazing. memories. Another one was a guy um, picked us up in Switzerland, I think. Or it was Italy, Italy-Swiss border. And, um, yeah, he drove very fast and he was a little bit, he, he was a little bit scary. I, I didn't feel very comfortable with him. He was very red-eyed. And he said he'd just been on a camping trip and the back of his car was just complete chaos. There was tents and cucumbers and underpants and and he would drive with a beer can in his hand and I thought, I'm not particularly happy about this. I don't feel very relaxed. And there's something about him that I didn't feel quite comfortable with. And mostly drove through Switzerland in the dark and eventually he pulled over and he said, I'm so, so tired, which is why he was red-eyed. He said, I'm so, so tired. I'm just going to have to pull over and sleep here so he wound his seat back and me and Dave had to try and sleep in the back of his car and the next morning he said uh, do you think you could give me some cash he hadn't got enough cash and maybe couldn't access cash to pay for petrol so he did that but the next morning he seemed a completely different character and he said I'm I'm going to take you now to to my hometown and to to my work and where I where I work and he was a physiotherapist in a very plush five-star hotel took us to the hotel, gave us towels, said, here, go and have a swim, have a shower, bought us lunch, and then drove us to the drop-off point on the motorway to, to get us on to the next part of the journey. You know, and these things, these things, these gifts that people, the kindness of people was quite amazing, which is why I'm always interested in supporting younger people today and sharing students coming to the house and lovely Frankie doing her journey. You know, it's a continuum of, of, and, and of trusting people. And I have other friends that, those sorts of lives, you know, where they maybe live a life without cash and, and go and see, you know, Satish Kumar did it. He walked out of his home with no money, says, I'm going to walk out of India and, and trust that life will support him. And you meet amazing people if you, if you do that. But then, yeah, the, big, the, big, the biggest highlight of my life, the biggest and best trip was my trip to India and that went on to Nepal and just phenomenal I had I had a focus on having massages in India and Nepal and I could have written a book on all the different styles of massage and who with and all the little stories wow. that went with that but it was a very very creative trip for me I had a very creative response to the landscape and meeting people and uh, I don't know I, I, if I sat and drew or if I sat and did a sand sculpture on the beach I'd get crowds of people coming around you know sort of being you know sort of maybe I don't know if they hadn't seen it before it was just it was just very interesting and I soon realized it was a way of engaging with people and if I didn't have a language if we if we couldn't speak you know little kids in Nepal I could I could make art with them or do drawings or juggling another thing I was doing quite a lot of juggling and playing ball games so it was a, it was a lovely um 
trip of, of meeting people in a different way, creatively. And But walking, and in um, Nepal we did the Annapurna circuit, which is generally takes about three weeks and you climb almost not from sea like pokhara i can't remember what height it was but you climb up to 17 and a half thousand feet over two over maybe eight ten days and the different landscape the different um can't think of the right word um geographically the changes from tundra you know to, to ice to desert you, you go through so many different changes it, it was incredible and and the meditative state you get into walking every day in very stunning scenery and meeting very humble poor poor people but we stayed mostly in people's homes very simple homes where they're cooking on one one pot on one fire and then you, you, we got up to you know when you climb to 17,000 17,500 feet there's obviously a lack of oxygen you have to acclimatize and the way you did that is you had to climb high in the day and then drop down low at night, and it's, it helps your, the oxygen in your brain adjust. So we did quite a bit of that, and then the day we had to do the longest day was it's called the Throngla Pass, and we had to be up at four in the morning and and climb for maybe ten hours before you go down again. So it was a very very early start, and I think I was quite nervous, and we'd hardly slept. And the day we woke, that morning we woke up, it was a whiteout. It was just blizzard conditions. And we had a guide. We were lucky. There was two of us, just two of me and my good buddy, Rebecca. But we had a guide. He was only 16 and I wasn't... He'd done this a few times, but it was a way of earning money for them. Now I think about it. He was, yeah, he was very strong. He carried our bag too. So we'd put, packed all our stuff into one bag. And uh, he'd been recommended to us by a friend that we'd met out in, in India. And she said, oh, if you go to, if you go to Nepal, uh, hire Krishna, you know, go just go and find him on the streets. Just ask for Krishna in Nepal. And it, it worked. And he was, he was a really nice guy. And he had, had done this a few times. And he knew all the people and places, good places to stay. But um, at the point of climbing into the mountains in a blizzard with a 16-year-old, I didn't feel very confident at that time as a 35-year-old woman. And I did have the effects of lack of oxygen in that I couldn't quite breathe and it gave me a stitch sort of feeling. And every few steps I had to stop and bend over and leave a pain and have a bit of a massage. So that was that was quite difficult. And then Rebecca got it higher, closer to the top where she could hardly walk. But we did this, we did the the walk in the snow and eventually it cleared. And then you walked down and down and down and down. The other side of the pass was completely different landscape again, but stunningly beautiful, much more barren. But we almost walked downhill then for two weeks and it was the strangest of feeling because if you ever just go climbing in, you know, I, I was used to climbing in mostly in England and Snowdon and, and Scotland and Wales. And you do a climb in a day. You go up and you come down. But if you've gone up and up and up and up and up, then you've got, you're coming down and down. It's weird getting up. And I felt like we were walking into the middle of the earth. You know, it was just, how could we keep going down? We went down more than we went up. <laughs> it was just, I just remember thinking that was a really weird feeling. But yeah, it was absolutely fantastic trip. And um, I always swore I'd go back if I had kids and take my kids there. So I haven't done that with Jesse. So maybe one day I'll go back there. Now my adventures are much closer to home. What sort of things do you do now? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, I've got a 15-year-old daughter and apart from lockdown, she's at school. So I, I, we don't tend to go off and have those sorts of big adventures. 
but also to keep my personal sanity as a as parenting a 15 year old teenage girl I think my my adventures are more close to home and they're with women of a similar age and mindset so we still feel um very adventurous in our our mind and our spirit it's a spirit of adventure and we call them micro adventures so we might just all go on our bikes and go and camp out on the local hill with no tents at all and we've done that we've done that in lockdown five five of us went and just you know it's a two-hour bike ride it's just a lovely feeling to go and do that and then I spend a lot of time in our local brook um, which is five or ten minutes from home and I've paddled in my own little craft that I sort of invented down this brook which can be very very shallow you know it's a few inches deep at times so if you took a canoe on it we have taken once a big um, Canadian canoe but that's a heavy thing to lift in and out if you get a tree across your your you're trapped you have to lug the canoe around and I didn't want that I wanted easy access so I bought a big rubber ring basically and put a piece of wood across it because I wanted to sit upright and and an oar from another boat probably a little rubber dinghy or something because I'm a I I like to kayak generally is my method on the river Um, so this thing's a bit more like a coracle but it was a, a cheap and quick way of getting on the river and I've been mudlarking is the word for it. I've been gathering found items out of the river, partly to clear it. I mean, this this river is is in a beautiful nature. The last 5K of it, it's 25 kilometres long. The last 5K runs through south of Shrewsbury into the River Severn in, in the town centre. And the last 5K is a local nature reserve and it's protected and it's beautiful and people use it for dog walking and all sorts of fishing. And But it, it is juxtaposed by businesses, um, housing estates, very, very close to the river's edge. Some of them I'm gobsmacked how they ever got planning. So it's got this sort of very hard edge to it in in, in places and not so attractive to, to some people. You know, it, pre-lockdown, people would choose to get in their car and walk up the hill with their dogs. I think that would be the preference that obviously you can nip down the brook and walk your dog. But so So I wasn't using it so much so apart from I, I'd run down there regularly but in lockdown you know it was the only place we could go was to, to go within walking or cycling distance so the river just became this huge focus for me and for many other people actually but because it's it has a lot of built environment around it it's become a dumping ground I can see for possibly builders or people doing their own DIY the things I've pulled out of it, uh, you know, there's a ton of bricks in it for a start, but there's a lot of concrete. I've pulled wheelbarrows out, builders' shovels. And so I've been fascinated that people have treated this river really with a bit of disrespect over the years and have seen it as a, an easy dumping ground. And then, of course, there's endless shopping trolleys that end up. I don't know how, but I think somebody enjoys taking shopping trolleys. There's, of course, there's, there's an Asda close by, there's a little Sainsbury's close to it, there's another Sainsbury's, so, you know, these these trolleys end up in the river and, of course, they can be a hazard to the wildlife. And uh, I had a bit of an obsession of wanting to get them all out and I've, I've pulled out at least seven out of the river during lockdown. And to me, they're, they're quite, I think they've, they've got a, beauty to them when they're all rusted and covered in in layers of mud or they've got twigs in them and I've being an artist and and interested in sculpture I I wanted to upcycle them and I have a plan to to build um 
structures from them. One will be a, a house of clay on a, on a shopping trolley. Another one I want to project. I've been doing a lot of filming of the river and of movement and of light and shadows. And I'm going to project a film of the river inside the shopping trolley. And I might build it into a nest and then have um, the projection of the water with the sound coming out as well. I obsessively listen to one track, one song by Parov Stella all the way through my running in lockdown. And it talks about... It was incredible because it was very poignant and it talks about um, in this in this dark time, you know, hope is all we have. And I couldn't believe that I was I was just really into the music of this song, but I hadn't listened to the words. And then I started listening to it and it's like, yeah, how, how to listen to the grass growing up, you know, which is really being mindful and in the environment. And then it's then it talked about building your house of clay by the river. And I'm thinking, here I am, always wanting to build my house of clay. And here I am loving this river. I thought, this is, this is absolutely my song. And so I want to build this house of clay on the shopping trolley and project the song coming out of the house. So it's a very personal response to my, my river lockdown project. But as well as that, I realised, you know, so many other people that are enjoying this river too, and I'm fascinated by whether people had never been down there before. You know, I wanted to do a survey. I thought, there's, there's people here I know with maps that haven't got a clue where they're going. And there's so many ways of finding a way down to this river through these housing estates. And so I, I, and I bumped into friends. I said, have you ever been down here before? And they were saying no. I was thinking, how can I, how can I find this out? Um, so that was one, one sort of questioning I was, I was thinking about. You could sense the busyness of it from having run there all winter and not seeing a soul to, to now loads of people being down there. Um, the other thing I was aware of, obviously, you know, people living on their own in lockdown. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have a partner and a, a daughter, but there were people on their own and fear, more fearful and... Um, and some, some not going, the, the, everybody's response was different, wasn't it? And, and people, you know, passing people by the river and how, how you turned your face or the distance. Anyway, there was, there was all that going on. But I was thinking particularly of people um, with, with mental health issues. Everything was amplified or, or feeling claustrophobic and not coming out. And so um, and I was aware of a friend that lived down there that never really came out of the house. So um, I was making little artistic installations along the river just from found objects I was finding old ceramics and bricks and photographing them and sharing them on Facebook and the people were quite interested in them so I, I encouraged a friend to come out of the house for the first time in ages just to come and look at these and then I set her a little treasure hunt that took her all because she said there's areas that she'd never been so I said right I'm going to set you this treasure hunt and that was a really magical little sharing and again I thought this why just do it for a, a lovely friend? You know, I'd love to share that with more people. So I started thinking about the whole idea of a community group and experience. And uh, and I, I, it was weird because I'd set 2020 pre, pre-COVID as a time of transition for me and my own work because uh, work's been relatively successful, but there's a point when I feel that I'm just making to sell work in galleries and uh, shows. And if you get into that sort of repetition of making, you lose a little bit of something. And um, the problem is it's successful and people want that work and the galleries want to see some uniformity and continuation of that work. I need something else. I need to be moving on all the time. And I thought, well, I could continue that work, but I need to explore another way of working. So 
2020 was my year for exploring that. So I'd already decided to take a bit of time out from the making. And then, then lockdown came. So I thought, right, now this is it. And so there was the pulling out of the materials. And I've, I've not just pulled out shopping trolleys. There's been so many interesting bits of old bits of metal and everything. And I want to recompose those in a, in a whole ceramic exhibition. Sorry, I was, I was talking about community. So the other thing was, I, I'm used to running community projects, but they're mostly projects that have been off, offered to me. I thought I'd, I'd like one that I've come up with the idea and I want to share. So it really is my passion. And I thought, let's, let's set this around something that some people will appreciate. And we found a pot of funding that was around well-being, which seemed absolutely perfect, focusing on environment, place and people. So uh, I've been exploring that over the last few months and uh, because Facebook was quite a good way and I do quite a lot of my work through Facebook, I get people coming to workshops from Facebook. I decided to set up a, a Rebrook Facebook group. It's called Rebrook Wonders. But then you set up a group because that's public and it's more interactive. So we've got Rebrook Wonders group. And within a few weeks, we've got over 300 members, 370, I think now, and it's lovely because people are doing their own thing and they're sharing their stories and they're sharing bits of history or their childhood and, you know, what it means to them. So this, it's really, it's really nice. And uh, I think, oh, gosh, I started that. <laughs> and I sometimes post as Rebrook Wonders and I sometimes post as Ruth. And I, Ruth, as Ruth, I put in the wacky arts things. Facebook is Facebook and we can all have, it has, we have a lot of issues with it. But um, what what inspires me to keep using it is that other people say we absolutely love your posts and keep posting and if if two or three people it makes two or three people feel happy and inspired i think that's an, a good enough reason in fact it's lovely to have those sorts of compliments i never want to bore people or or say look at me aren't I, you know look at what i'm doing sorry i'm going on and on and no, i haven't really got amazing. onto the <laughs> I was- I was just gonna say, when you're finding the things in the river, how in the, in the brook, how do you find them, and how do you get them out? Well, so, sometimes they're little tiny things. So, um, and it's usually after a run. So after a run, it's something I've loved doing. Is uh, after running quite hard, I'll I'll go to my favourite spots, and I have all my favourite places along the river. I have a meditation spot. There's a beach where I can dance and do tai chi. Once you've run, you're very much in your body and out of your out of your mind. I don't like to say that, but you you know you you're not so much focused on brain stuff, and so it's a really nice opportunity to then to go into the flow of movement. And quite often that takes me in my shoes. I don't mind. I'm always wandering into the water because I can see these little things sparkling. And and apart from having my obsession with bricks, because I've worked with bricks for 20 years, you know, tiny little pieces of shards, they're called brick shards that are softened by the water. I just knew those appealed to me and they're easy things to pick up. The bigger bricks I was making, I was hiding and then making sculptures with and then taking photographs. And then um, sometimes I'd bring those home. When they were just little, when it was a run and I, I I pick up rubbish. So quite often I do a big litter pick and then go and put it in a bin. And I found lots of dog poo bags unused that had just been dropped probably by accident and not been noticed. So I'd always keep a few dog poo. I never bought any. There are other people's, so I'm recycling. And I just make sure I only took enough to fill a little dog. So they're little tiny pieces, but you know, the, the, the hunting for beautiful ceramics, I've got some really old ceramics out and some old pipe, you know, clay pipes out of the river. And what about the shopping trolleys? How 
Okay, so the shopping trolleys, yeah, so so the shopping trolleys, some of them are very submerged and quite difficult. So you sometimes think, oh, this one's absolutely entrenched into the... It's become part of the riverbank or it's become part of the riverbed and it's impossible to get out. I have once pulled on one and it came into two pieces and I didn't like it because I was leaving sharp metal in the water, which I thought that's not good for the fish or the otters there are otters in the brook the big shopping trolleys that I have got out I've invited a friend so in lockdown it was my friend's birthday and I said and she'd seen absolutely nobody I said what more do you want would you like to come on one of Ruth's adventure sent her a little map I said meet me here and we're going for a little picnic and a little shopping trolley <laughs> it was the first shopping trolley we got out actually so me and Adele <laughs> hold the shopping trolley out absolutely caked in mud and all sorts and I took it back to Sainsbury's just for a laugh <laughs> Yeah, and took photographs of us outside. But if uh, what happens then is I'll go and take my little van close to the brook as possible, and we can carry. We can go and pick it up later. So I have been seeing. You know, I can carry a lot of these things home. When I've done a big trawl, I've gone with a friend, and we've we've taken stuff from the middle of the river in my little paddling boat, and we've gathered that. And I leave little collections on the side of the bank, and then I go back and I remember where they are and go back and pick them up later so I've got you know boxes and boxes of treasure and I sometimes post them and and I note where all the shopping trolleys are but there's there's at least five that have just become part of the river Mm. and I talked to the council and they said oh there's none left in there we 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 took them all out a year ago I said well you've missed at least eight Mm. so it's amazing but I think now they won't be old and rusted because I've probably got most of those most of those out um, you talked a little bit about running. Is that something you started doing in lockdown, or is it something you've no, but, done? No, um, but I've been trying to run on and off since around about the age of fifty. Having been a very sporty, fit youngster, and um, continued playing competitive sport, netball, and badminton, and basketball, and circuit training till my thirties. I think it stopped when I did my degree in ceramics, which became my I have quite obsessive nature, so that became my obsession and uh, the sport stopped. And really, I didn't do much from having my daughter. I regret it now, looking back, why I didn't continue. But I sort of, I put on weight and I sort of just accepted that this was what happens when you become a mum in your mid-40s. So, uh, And then I had this most amazing, inspirational friend who had done something similar having not had a sporty background but she'd she'd gained weight over parenting to two lads and um, being a single parent and around about just before her 50th I think she just very quietly took herself off and did Weight Watchers and lost a lot she she just like she'd stepped out of one body into a new body it was unbelievable because we hadn't seen her for a little while and that was Uh, a very physical you know transformation in front of your eyes in a way but not only that she took up running at the same time having never run in her life and I wow gosh you, you can you can do that and not only that she then went on to race and do mountain running and has retrained as a physical um trainer and keeps runs two or three fit clubs a week and she does that outdoors for I think it's called fit after 40 with Sal but most of us are probably over 50 and such an inspiration to me and I I went on a trip with her to Germany for a weekend and uh, we talked and did running then and I really saw her her fitness and felt my unfitness 
shockingly, you know, and I thought, there's no reason why I can't do this, apart from I'd had a physio that said, don't start running at your age, which was like, I will start running at my age. I'm not going to be told not to. So I did do couch to 5K, and I did it two or three times, and I did it very, very quietly, and I did it in my cemetery, which is absolutely beautiful. So I did all my initial running in the cemetery, and when I feel confident enough, I'll go down to the river. So I'd only really been... I'd got up to 5K twice, but um, it was only last autumn that I was running it regularly three times a week that was my aim by Christmas actually so really the beginning of 2020 was running three times a week regularly and when lockdown happened I said that's that's it exercise is just going to be my thing I do maybe I have a break from my normal arts practice but I'm going to keep fit and so I did and are you still running now and I'm still running now I do have slight pain developing in my right hip or my right and my right knee and I think possibly old injuries so I'm being really careful and just monitoring it and doing loads and loads of stretching I do yoga as well I do tai chi so they they keep me mobile yeah I'm, I'd love to be able to keep on running I'm, seriously I, I love it yeah um usually I talk to people about their journey in their life but I feel like we've talked a lot about it so I'm yeah. gonna skip that and I'm gonna go straight in I've got a section that's kind of around emotions Right, And I've asked everybody about what do you think your authentic self means? What do you think it is? Mm, God, I hate things like that. I think I'm probably, is it, it is recording, I think I'm probably living my most authentic self right now. But I think it takes a lot of time in life to, to know your authentic self and to live true to your heart, really, and to your passions and to follow, to follow those. And of course, throughout your life, there are times when you, it's impossible to do that. And I think the weight of responsibility can take hold, particularly, you know, as a mother, as somebody, you know, with as a homeowner with a mortgage, with responsibility to looking after the home, um, holding down jobs. You know, we all become quite serious. And uh, my authentic self is incredibly playful. It's weird because I, I I knew as a child I was more playful. I don't know, I sensed it. In my family I was more playful in spirit. And I, my parents tried a little bit to crush it because my mum found it embarrassing. And I was a bit silly and jokey and, and, and daft and she just didn't like that. If we were out in public, you know, I wasn't allowed to make a joke at a dinner table. It was just a bit weird isn't it? Or or clap too loudly in a concert, you know. Anyway, so so now I, I'm through years, I'm totally accepting, but this is how I am. And the playfulness and the creativity work very well together. And I think it inspires others. And I'm only just learning to recognise that I do inspire others. And it's inspiring people to be playful and that it's okay. And it's okay at whatever age. I mean, I have questioned it quite deeply because I can see that obviously it embarrasses my daughter for me to behave in a certain way. But then I have to, I've questioned the appropriateness of certain behaviours of a woman of a certain age out outdoors. You know, what does it look strange? Doesn't me paddling down the river? And do I just look like this strange artist? You know, and people do call me mad and my parents actually think I'm quite mad. And I say, I'm not mad. I'm I'm actually really happy and really loving what I do. And because I love what I do, other people are attracted to that, I think. And I think you do what you love with passion and you share it with others. And what's more authentic than that? What do you think bravery is? Oh, bravery. 
bravery is doing doing anything you're fearful of. It can be the tiniest of things, can't it, bravery? It can be it, bravery can be smiling at somebody you like that you feel shy about and that's that's brave and it's stepping over it's it's taking yourself out of your comfort zone. I've got a friend who goes off and does two weeks camping on her own in a tiny little tent on a bicycle with very little money. And we all say to her, oh my God, you're such an inspiration, Mary, and you're so brave. And she says, I'm just as scared as anybody else. But she says, I need to do it and I want to do it. And it's not brave. So so we've had these conversations about bravery. I'm still very fearful of the dark and, and being out in the dark and... Uh, and also in the middle of the night, because I think the demons are stronger in your, you know, everything can look gloomier and more fearful at night. I was a very, very scared child. I was scared of the dark, and I think it's because I had a vivid imagination and because we didn't have a television. So if I ever saw anything on television, it was too, too powerful for me. So I remember being scared in a room full of people as a child with the television on. Nobody understood it, and I was scared to go to bed. So, so I'm somebody that, has, and I've, you know, that, that the whole anxiety thing. I've, I've, I've had to deal with that, and and panic attacks, you know, and, and bravery is to do something that you you're scared of. You have to feel it and do it anyway, and we have to not stop ourselves doing things because then we become trapped. But I do. I like to. I really like to acknowledge the tiny steps of bravery you know that we that everybody has to make and and that we all have fear we all we all think we don't we we think we're the only ones maybe that are anxious over something but I think everybody can have anxiety and fear and it's just to have somebody to hold your hand or to encourage you to to do it and what do you think happiness feels like (laughs) that's a really good question isn't it I feel it a lot these days and it's it probably sounds quite corny, but it's definitely being in the moment and knowing right now this is this is good. I can feel it just being in the garden or just being outdoors or by the river or or running. They're momentary feelings. It's not a permanent state. You know, we all think, oh well, if I do this, that, and the other, you'll become happy or happier. But it's just a it's just a feeling, an emotion. It comes and goes, and and some days I can feel fantastic and feel really happy, and the next day it's just all changed and something shifted and for no apparent reason it might be something in my subconscious or a dream or and and it's gone or it could be something you've heard on the news or it could be something somebody said and you've taken it personally or the wrong way you know and and those moments of happiness is gone and it it, like all all emotions you know we aren't our emotions they just come through us and I tried to teach my daughter that who can feel angry or or sad or depressed I said that you are not your emotions. You know, they're just things that come and go. And happiness is just one of a, a number of emotions that we all experience. Do you have any female role models? Who are they and why? Oh, they are those very personal role models, I think. Of friends that have gone through difficulty and extraordinary transitions that, that inspire me. And there's many of them. I've got very many close friends that are my role models, in a way. A good friend who's a yoga teacher and teaches us about um, kindness and compassion. She's also a fantastic campaigner for the environment and has been arrested and the campaign for XR. And uh, That's Jackie Jones. She's a, a great role model for many women of our generation, but is not, although very intelligent and scientifically based, 
um, she's got humor and a lightness that makes her such joyful a joyful teacher and, and good company that there's wise women that I listen to and, and read you know Maya Angelou is a, is a brilliant brilliant woman I think she's fantastic um, but you know I I just think all women when when I had when I gave birth I looked at every single woman who had given birth and become a mother in a different light. I was truly, truly gobsmacked at the whole experience. And if you, you, you can go through that and then look after these children. So I think most mothers I have huge respect for. I think it's, it's not a big pedestal thing, really. And I think most people who, who've struggled and come out the other side are, are wise and... Awesome. Yeah. This is it. This is the last question. Thank <laughs> you so much. What's one piece of advice that you oh, give God. to your younger self? Uh, to my younger self, yeah, would be to uh, to relax and enjoy it all a bit more. You know, be be confident in yourself. Uh, less less self critical. Take the inner critic, knock the inner critic on its head. Um, but yeah, how can you say that to your younger self? None of it matters really. They're all big, deep questions that I struggle to, to, to say succinctly in a, in a sentence. But, yeah, probably a younger self, definitely not to worry so much. But that, that comes... I remember thinking, how do you become confident? I want to be more confident. How do you become confident at a very young age? I think the only way to become confident is to do stuff that makes you more confident. It's experience, isn't it? And I'd say take risks, say yes. Say yes to everything. And take risks. Don't be don't be scared, or if you're scared, just acknowledge that it's it's normal to be scared, and that everybody else is probably feeling the same way. There's all those sorts of things, really. I remember somebody giving me some advice that I really liked, and it it, it was to do with around probably having anxiety, and I can still get anxious, and it's not a good thing that I will get anxious on depending on who the person is I'm talking to and where I think they sit in some sort of hierarchy now that's not a good I, I need to knock that on my head Dave's very good at everybody is equal my brother's very good at that you know not being fearful of some big wig comes into the room and this counsellor it was a counsellor I think who said it to me and she said that her father had said to her as a five-year-old girl she said always walk whenever you walk into a room just walk into a room as though you're equal to everybody Never think there's anybody in there better than you, greater than you, but never think there's anybody in there that's worse. And, and you just treat everybody equally. And it's quite a hard one to live by because I, I, can, I sense it when I know, if I'm running a workshop and I hear of a certain name on the way, I'm like, oh my God, I've got that person coming. It's particularly if it's your peers or somebody who's super talented, brilliant at their jobs, I suddenly get anxious and I don't know why and I think they're only coming to play with some clay, they, they're coming to, to take what you can give, they're not comparing themselves, to, you know, why we compare ourselves to each other, it's one of our big things we have to really try to drop, can't remember the question what did you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> no that's awesome, you answered it completely <laughs> Thank you so much. Are we done? We are. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I can expect. Have a plum. Wow. What incredible advice to end the interview and to end the season with. I love this episode. I find Ruth's voice so soothing 
and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It is the end of season one. Thank you so much for everything you have done so far to help support and grow the podcast. Every time you recommend it to a friend, every time you share it on your Instagram stories, every single review, every single rating and follower and person who signs up to the newsletter, it really, really does help and I wouldn't be here without you. Season two is coming out soon and I'll be talking to 10 more awesome people about their adventurous lives as I cycle further and further north. If you want to keep up to date in between the seasons, the best place to go is to our newsletter that you can find via the website or the show notes, or give us a follow on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Extraordinary Ordinary Women, Facebook at Extraordinary Ordinary Women, and on Twitter, you can find me, Frankie underscore Jewa. We have some pretty exciting news coming up. I have just set up a Patreon account to help the podcast to keep going and keep growing. As I'm recording this, I already have two awesome folks signed up. Thank you so much to Mildred and Jen for their support. Thanks to their help, I am halfway to covering the podcast expenses making it more sustainable to keep running in the long run. Thank you so much to them for their help. The support from Patreon really will help me to make the podcast the very best it can be. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit extraordinaryordinarywomen.co forward slash support. And until next time, keep on being extraordinary. Extraordinary.